FPGAs are magic, and hardware which runs on them is traditionally more expensive than generic hardware with emulators installed on them. But why? Let's find out. This is the Waffling Tailor's Raw with Jay, a series of shorter episodes of indefinite length. These episodes will cover shorter topics that don't really fit within the scope of the show or topics that I want to cover in my own way. That's not to say that we won't cover these topics in the main show, but I'd like to take a whack at them here first. I can't guarantee that all of these shorter episodes will always be as technical as this one, but I needed to do a little deep dive in order to get the point across. FPGAs are deeply technical, and while I won't go into too much detail, um, I'm all about using metaphor and analogy to get the point across, it'll be worth having these show notes to hand, as I've added a whole bunch of links in there. So open those up and read along, I guess. Anyway, let's get to it. FPGAs are magic. As you've just heard, FPGAs can be rather complex and I want to try to explain their use in gaming through the use of analogy and metaphor. There's a wonderful quote from science fiction writer Arthur C. Clarke. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. This is part of his three laws, which he used to inform his writing. He was writing about fantastical things like space travel and futurism, focusing on what could be. I don't think any sci-fi writers of his day could credibly dream of a time when electronic components could actually change their composition at will. But that's almost what FPGAs can do. Before we start, let's clarify what FPGA stands for. It stands for Field Programmable Gate Array. Unless you have a background in electronic engineering, you might not know what that means. And to tell the truth, I didn't know what it meant when I first heard about them. Ah, This was back when I was at uni in 2004. Gate here means logic gate. You know those computer chips, or integrated circuits to use their proper name, that everything seems to be made of these days? They are made up of millions of logic gates, which are made up of billions of transistors. A logic gate is an electronic component which can be used to do Boolean mathematics. That is, anding, oring, and knotting the inputs. Think of them as switches with two or more inputs, and that they calculate whether something is true or not. Before we continue, let's look at an example. Suppose we have a logic gate for calculating whether we should take an umbrella with us. Our inputs might be, it is raining, and I am outside. If both of these inputs are true, i.e. it is raining and I am outside, then the output of that logic gate would be, take an umbrella. Because these two inputs are true, the output should be true. And this is what is called an AND gate. It ANDs those two inputs together. Anyway, computer chips and FPGAs have millions of these gates in them. The difference between logic gates that are used in computers and those found in FPGAs is that they are arranged in a specific order and never change. FPGAs are what's known as field programmable, meaning that the way that they are arranged can be modified in the field, uh, which just means whatever you like. Imagine you have a computer 
which could have more RAM simply by rebooting. That's kind of what FPGAs are. I remember watching Hackers. Yes, the Hack the Planet movie, when it first came out. And there's a pretty cool transition from the New York City skyline to a stylized circuit board. Cityscapes and circuit boards have a lot of things that actually cross over. You can't have buildings on top of each other, but neither can you have chips on top of each other. Not really, but for the purposes of this podcast, you can't have chips on top of each other. You can't have roads which cross without some kind of controller or traffic lights, and this is the same with circuits. And when a blockage happens, i.e. some kind of traffic, it slows everything else down. But what if you could rearrange the city at will? FPGAs in emulation. A lot of companies use FPGAs in machines which are built to play older video games, like the hardware from Analog or the Mister projects. They aren't just used in what some people think is overpriced gaming hardware, they're also used in the cloud a lot. Ingress or entryways into applications are usually controlled by firewalls, which are created using FPGAs. They're used because the low-level hardware can be controlled via software. But that doesn't actually explain how they work. Um, Let's use another metaphor. Please remember that, like all metaphors, it will fall apart if you think about it too much. Imagine you have a Sega Mega Drive, or a Genesis if you will. The hardware inside it is tuned specifically to run applications from cartridges. It can only run whatever is supplied via the cartridge slots. 99.999 99.999 Approximately 10 hours later 9999% of the time, these are games. There are things like the Game Genie, the 32X, the TV Tuner and the Sega Net, but most of the time the cartridges are games. Only when a cartridge is inserted into the console will it actually do anything. It has one use, run whatever is on the cartridge. The hardware inside the Mega Drive or Genesis will only run applications on cartridges which are written for the Mega Drive or Genesis. Again, let's not talk about the 32X or the Mega CD for now. Meaning that if you were able to take the chips from a NES cartridge and put them into the shell of a Mega Drive cartridge, it would not run. There's a caveat here for Master System games, but we won't get into that right now. Now imagine that you could completely reconfigure the Mega Drive such that it was, in fact, a NES simply by powering it off and then powering it back on again. Uh, Like some sort of weird video game console slash transformer crossover maybe? But without using emulation though. In this instance, the Mega Drive would become a NES, as in all the components would rearrange themselves on the atomic level to become those found in the NES, the circuit boards would rearrange themselves such that the chips fit, and the shell would turn grey and rearrange itself. It would be a NES. Let's talk about emulation for a second. In terms of software, emulation is when you write an application which pretends to be something else. The thing which is running the application remains the same, but the application itself is a software approximation of that other thing. Most gamers know this as video game console emulation. Think of things like the cores used in RetroArch or applications like BSNES or Beetle. With BSNES, you open an application, BSNES in this instance, load a ROM into BSNES, that's usually a SNES game, and then BSNES will read through the ROM and pretend to be a real SNES, 
SNES, Super Nintendo, whatever you want to call it. The key word here is pretend. Nothing has actually changed on your computer, or phone, Raspberry Pi, or whatever you're actually running BSNES on. It is still running whatever operating system from before, albeit underneath BSNES. It can still browse the web, it can still play YouTube videos and open documents. It has some software on it, which is doing its best imitation of a SNES, and is showing you what that might look like on a real TV screen. This is totally different to what FPGAs do in the newer retro consoles. What FPGAs are doing is that they are reconfiguring themselves to be a SNES when they start up. Looking at the chips themselves, they effectively are a SNES. They're not running software which pretends to be one, they are one. It's a little bit more complicated than that, but that's the gist of it anyway. Another analogy. As analogies go, this one will definitely fall to pieces if you think about it too much. But in the words of Mario, Here we go! Imagine you walk into a fast food place. Let's call it whack monads Which sounds really rude, but it actually isn't. Everyone is wearing matching uniforms. The food is served from a very limited menu, compared to a swanky sit-down restaurant with waiters. The tables are arranged in a very specific pattern. The walls will be painted with specific colours. The building has one use, for you to buy and eat fast food. What if the people change their uniforms, the menu changes, and the layout changes, but the cooking equipment and the ingredients stay the same? It's still using the Whack Monad's cooking equipment, and it's still using those same ingredients, but the things that you can buy have changed. Is it still the same fast food restaurant? That's emulation, because the menu has changed, uh, that's the applications or games that you can run. The uniform and layout have changed, that's the user interface. But the kitchen and ingredients stays the same, the underlying hardware that everything's running on. What if the building is torn down and rebuilt in a completely different shape? A different company rents that new building. Completely different employees are hired and given completely different uniforms. A different menu is offered. The layout is different. And here's the key point. The ingredients and the kitchen are completely different. That's FPGAs, because rather than running the same hardware, it's torn down and recreated completely each time. The menu has changed. Uh, That's the format of the games that it can run. Let's say Mega Drive, NES, Jaguar, PlayStation. The uniforms have changed. That's the user interface of the console that you are now running. Rather than pretending that it's something it's not, for all intents and purposes, it is that thing. Our series of FPGAs is now a PlayStation, but our PC is still running Windows, which is still running RetroArch, which is still running Business, or Beetle in this case. Beetle is a PlayStation emulator. Comparing emulation to FPGAs. Software emulation is a translator from one set of instructions, say Motorola 68K for the Mega Drive or Genesis, all the way over to x86 to x64 for PC. Without these translators, your computer wouldn't be able to understand the instructions which are encoded into the ROMs for your favourite games. Each game is just a program which has been written for a very specific type of computer, a games console. The emulator is built up of lots of different translators, split into modules. 
there is usually one translator per chip or hardware component in the target system. For example, the CPU of the Mega Drive, which is a Motorola 68K. The more chips or components there are in the console, the more translators are required in the emulator. It doesn't really map to exactly that, but it'll do for this argument. Some older games consoles are actually made up of components which don't even speak the same language. So you might end up with translators for translators. For example, and sticking with the Mega Drive, the Yamaha YM2612, which is the sound chip, spoke a different language to the CPU, which is the Motorola 68K. You also need interpreters from one input type to another. Let's say you have a USB controller for your emulator. In that case, you're going to need some code which maps the button presses on that controller to what the console, in this case a Mega Drive, would be expecting. Luckily, part of that work is done for you with device drivers, but only part of the work. You still need some code which takes the device driver output and converts it to what the console would expect. The X button on your USB controller will not output the same signal as, say, the B button on a Mega Drive controller. I can guarantee you that. You'll also need a video compatibility layer. In our example, we're using a Mega Drive. Well, the Mega Drive converted a digital signal from the frame buffer, which was a Yamaha YM7101, to an analog signal, and then modulated it into an FM signal to be sent up to your TV so that it could pretend to be a TV channel. In an emulator, you don't need to do this. You can take the frame buffer data and display it on screen, but only if you convert it to DirectX, OpenGL, Vulkan, which is used on Linux machines, or Metal, which is used on Mac OS machines. And even then, you still need some software which draws a window for you to put that video into. And you have to do the exact same thing for the sound. And all of that needs to run on top of an operating system. And if the operating system starts to run slowly, or the graphics drivers, or the sound drivers, or the hard drive, or any part of the computer which is unrelated to the emulator for that matter, then the emulator will suffer. Because the computer isn't just running the game. It's doing a complex juggling act in order to make it look like it's doing a lot of things at once. Most of the time, computers are only ever doing one thing at a time but they switch between them so quickly that you won't even ever notice. Whereas FPGAs don't have to do any of that, because they are the chips. They don't need translation or interpretation of anything. They don't need to translate or convert each line of the game ROM into some other instruction set. Uh, Instruction sets are the languages of the CPU. Intel and AMD tend to use the x86-x64 instruction set, whereas the Motorola 68K used Complex Instruction Set Computer, or CISC, because they already understand it all. Again, it's a little more complex than that, but let's not get bogged down by too many details. The only thing they need to do is map the controller in your hand to the controller that the console that it has become is expecting. Again, this is where device drivers come to the rescue. They also don't need to convert the frame buffer to analog and then modulate it into FM because the frame buffer is wired up to the HDMI port. Comparing emulators to FPGAs is like two completely different conversations. One which requires a translator and one where each party can speak the same language. A translator will have to take what you say and convert it into another language. They need to watch out for any non-verbal communication and be very careful of any idioms that you use too. 
this will likely be error-prone and very slow. It's slow because the translator has to wait until you've stopped talking, then they have to take a moment to really understand what you've said, and ask questions for clarification, then convert that to another language, and then they have to say it all. It could be error-prone because the translator has to understand everything that you've said, including any technical jargon or, like I said, any idioms, and be able to convert that into another language, and convey it to another person without losing any detail whatsoever. Think about how difficult it must be to translate a medical conversation from British English to Tokyo or standard Japanese. Also, Japanese medical jargon doesn't tend to use Greek or Latin words, like we do in English. They use Japanese words. So the translator needs to know about all of the medical terms that an English doctor might use and what they mean. And they need to know what the Japanese equivalents are and what they mean. Whereas if you know the languages, then you could do it all yourself, which means that it's faster and less error-prone. It's faster because you already are thinking in a way which allows you to swap languages at will. Any multilingual person will tell you that this is a real thing. Seriously, after a bit of a run-up, I can do this with English and Japanese. It's also less error-prone because you are the person doing the talking. So you fully understand what you are trying to say and what it means. You also likely understand the non-verbal communication and idioms to use, so you don't have to convert them either. Admittedly, it takes longer to learn British, English, Japanese and the medical jargon of both languages, which is why this, like all other metaphors and analogies, breaks down if you think about it too hard. Let's talk about cost. Let's compare the cost of an emulator to an FBGA-based system for a second. Let's face it, a lot of people are going to choose the cheapest option when they want to play video games. Uh, the waffling tailors do not condone piracy of any kind, also, yar. First, let's look at emulators. They are generally free to use. Free and open source software is awesome, by the way, and most of the infrastructure around us is actually built on it. Although they don't always have to be free, but we won't talk about the non-free options. Cough, Blamecast, cough. Most emulators, if not all, run on any kind of computer hardware, from powerful desktop PCs all the way down to low-power Raspberry Pis and everything in between, including mobile phones. They also run on almost any operating system, from Windows to Mac OS and even most Linux distributions. A few even run on Horizon, which is the codename for the Nintendo Switch operating system. They sometimes require effort in setting them up. Or they sometimes require non-free files like BIOS or system ROMs. They are mostly not 100% accurate, as everything is translated at runtime. For example, it took until a few years ago for BSNES to hit 100% accuracy. And even then, it's quite slow doing it. Sometimes they can't run at full speed, because the translation from one machine language to another takes CPU time, and it's very slow to do. Most emulators can only run games for one specific format, on one specific format. For example, an emulator for the SNES on Windows can only play SNES games on Windows. Now let's look at FPGA-based systems. FPGAs are non-free to use. They need to be bought, a circuit needs to be designed, and they need to be programmed. 
They only run on the hardware, in this case circuits, that they are built for. You can't run an FPGA inside of your computer. Well, at least not yet, and not without using an emulator. They tend to require next to zero effort and zero extra files or moving parts once they've been assembled and programmed, other than sourcing the original games, that is. They are almost always 100% accurate. This is because the FPGAs are the original hardware for all intents and purposes, and because of that, they almost always run at full speed. In fact, most FPGA-based gaming systems have to be slowed down. An FPGA gaming system like the Mister can actually run games from many different systems, because the chips can effectively become a different console or machine. A reboot is sometimes required in order to reconfigure the hardware, though. One last metaphor. Let's use one last metaphor before I stop talking about emulation in FPGAs. Have you ever watched a TV broadcast or a movie with a sign language interpreter on screen? Have you ever noticed that there is a slight pause between what the people are saying and what the signer is interpreting or signing? If you know any sign language, you'll notice that the interpreter usually skips over details that they think are unimportant. This is because they're interpreting in real time and must not fall out of time with what's being said. If they do fall out of time, then they might become confused or miss something which was said. Now imagine that you can lip-read with 100% accuracy. Most deaf people can do this, and it's really quite impressive to see. You wouldn't have to rely on the interpreter hearing, understanding, translating, and then signing. You would simply know what was being said. Because that would be an FPGA, right, Jay? Pretty much, Russell. Pretty much. In closing. So in closing, emulators are free, uh, most of the time, but they are sometimes not accurate, or sometimes don't even run at the same speed as the original hardware that they are emulating because they're translating everything in real time. Ryujinx, the Nintendo Switch emulator, doesn't do this. Keep an ear open for an episode of a different podcast that I host for details on that. FPGAs have a cost, and are generally better at being the target hardware than emulators are. Because he wanted to get the general point across rather than teach you everything there is to know about FPGA for that you'll have to take an electronic engineering course. So the next time someone is complaining about how much the mister or analog devices cost, tell them that it's a lot more complex than a trivial emulator. Hopefully you can hear the bunny quotes around that last word trivial there. Shall I start up my Mega Drive core so that we can play Streets of Rage 2, Jay? Sure thing, Russell. Sure thing. Intro music is Among the Stars by Muse Stage Productions. Outro music is I Need You Watashi no Sabate by GK. Spoiler break music is Spectrum Subdiffusion Mix by Phonics. Palette cleanser music is Breathe Deep, Breathe Clear by Siobhan Decay. See the show notes for a link. <laughs>